Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Joseph Stalin, Melancholy, Nasser, Emperor Kafia, Rockefeller, Campanella, Communist Block. Roy Cohn, Quamperan, Toscanini, Dak Grant, Dian Bien Phu Falls, Rock Around the Clock. Woo! Hello and welcome to episode 41 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that is history through a Billy Joel number one hit. All the people, places and moments that shaped our world, the ones racing for space, turning up the Cold War heat, building things up and knocking them down. I am Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie, shall we start some fires? I'd like to. And Katie, today we are going to a topic I can see a little bit of fire in your eyes. Oh, can you? Yes, I can. I think I just didn't get enough sleep. (laughs) Our topic today, we do so many different topics on this show. Topics sometimes that we walk in with a a look of excitement on our face, somewhere we look completely baffled, somewhere we have a little bit more prior knowledge of the topic. This feels like one of the last of those. We know a little bit more about rock around the clock. We are feeling a little more confident. We are, yeah. What was your first exposure to Bill Haley in the comments? My first exposure was as a teenager in America, and there was a 50s revival in the 70s. So for little kids like me, it was like the distant past. And the television show Happy Days had just launched. It was the TV version of the film American Graffiti. And both the film and the television show had Bill Haley singing Rock Around the Clock as the theme song. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. And so at school we would have 50s days and the girls would wear these high ponytails and wear little Peter Pan collared shirts and poodle skirts and saddle shoes and little bobby socks and the boys would wear their little, you know, hair in a quiff and then we would do our bad version of (laughs) swing dancing. And it it was total cosplay. So... I, th- I just think I thought of that music as just being very cartoony and costumey, like it was just theatrical. I didn't I didn't sort of connect it to rock and roll in any way. It was just more of a, a kind of a chance to dress up. How about you? Well, my first uh, exposure to it, Casey, came through a music teacher I had at secondary school 
So you know how you get a teacher who's your form teacher who does the register? Well, in 1F, class 1F, we got lucky because we got Mr. Frey, who was the music teacher, who had two amazing things in the classroom. He had a stand-up piano and he had a 1980s separate music system. So... At wet break, he would put top tunes on his record player, a lot of Beatles, but a lot of early rock and roll. And when we did music lessons, he would stand up at the, the upright piano and play rock and roll classics. Wow, very Jerry Lee us, Lewis. So Jerry Lee Lewis. And all us little 11-year-olds with our voices that hadn't broken <laughs> would sing along to these rock and roll classics, of which one was Bill Haley. So we did actual lessons on Bill Haley and about Black Boy Jungle. The, the film that the, it was the theme for. Yeah, the film that launched it. So I am excited about today's episode. And if we don't sing the opening lines at some point, I will be sorely disappointed. <laughs> oh, one, two, three o'clock, four, four o'clock, o'clock rock. rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're, We're going to rock, rock around, around the, the clock, clock tonight. tonight. All right. <laughs> Abort. <laughs> So um, we could talk about this all day and sing the song all day, but thankfully we're going to spare you that. And we're going to bring in a gentleman who is going to fill in the many and multifarious blanks. Peter Doggett is a music journalist who's written numerous books, including Electric Shock, which looks at the history of pop. And he's got a new book out called Growing Up, Sex in the 60s. So you are just the man for us, Peter. Welcome. I hope so. This is the first time I've been called a gentleman for a long time, I must say. Well, (laughs) I just make the most out of it. So Rock Around the Clock, which to me sounds like quite an optimistic and innocuous, upbeat little ditty was tied in with youth debauchery because it was the theme song of the teen exploitation melodrama Blackboard Jungle. Kind of want to get into into that film as well as the book, but why did that film have such an impact when it came out? Um, We're talking about 1955. It was a film based on a novel by Evan Hunter, who um, readers with long memories may remember uh, better as Ed McBain, who wrote all the 87th Precinct crime novels that were huge hit back then. And it was a book about juvenile delinquents um, and the vain attempts of a school teacher, a very decent school teacher who loved his jazz 78s to try and um, beat some culture into these awful James Dean, Marlon Brando lookalikes. <laughs> And the interesting thing about that film, for me, when you watch it, it launches with the one, two, three o'clock, four o'clock rock. And then it immediately goes into this dark, tough world, you know, the mean streets of New York. Um, What was the reaction to the film? Because I understand it was quite an extreme reaction, just even in the theaters. In America, because it was barely shown in Britain at the time, and when it was shown, it was an ex-certificate. So uh, there wasn't really much of a teenage reaction because most teenagers weren't allowed to go and see the film in in Britain. But when it opened in America, um, let me give you a quote from the main film censor in Memphis, Tennessee, who said, it's the vilest picture I've seen in 26 years. The teenagers start off bad. I thought they would reform and we'd have to pass the film. But they were just as bad in the end. (laughs) And people were outraged because they hadn't really on screen, even with Marlon Brando and James Dean, seen anything in which um, kids was was shown as so uh, irretrievably bad. 
Yeah, because you see the kids being like really surly, back chat to the teacher, whipping out switchblades. And I mean, I understand that some of the theaters in America had the seats ripped out. Like there were riots because the kids were, I don't know, I guess they got a little role model up there and they decided to let their freak flag fly. But for whatever reason, Rock Around the Clock got inextricably linked into this uh, very exciting bad behavior. But the the strange thing is that, uh, as a song, it had already been out and been a minor hit the previous year in America, and also then in Britain at the very start of 55 as well. But it wasn't seen then as being a rock and roll record. Um, in America, it was thought to be an R&B record, um, which made it dangerously black. And in Britain, it was a dance tune, um, because Bill Haley on the Comets just sounded like one of the thousands of bands who were filling all the ballrooms and dance halls up and down the country every weekend. Oh, yeah, exactly. Kind of like a skiffle band type thing in the UK. Yeah, or mixed with sort of Benny Goodman, swing band, you know, going back to the 30s, yeah. That's how it sounds, Kate. When I was listening back to it this morning, that's exactly how it sounded to me. I could hear more in common with swing bands than I could rock and roll. It didn't feel like this this record that changes the face of popular music forever. Um, the whole way it ends up in Blackboard Jungle sounds not lucky, but there's there's so much about this record which now has this great importance, which seems fated in some ways. And the way that this record first appears or first gets selected for Blackboard Jungle sounds in tune with that. As my daughters would have said a few years ago, it's very random. Yeah, um, <laughs> they knew that they wanted some sound that distinguished the kids and what they were listening to from the teacher and his, um, what uh, what seemed there in 1950, very square jazz records from the 30s. The problem was then, what is the extreme sound of 1955? Well, on the pop charts, there really wasn't anything. But they spoke to the teenage son of the main actor in the film, Glenn Ford, whose name was Peter, Peter Ford, and he offered up a, a collection of his favourite 78s of the period. And when they heard Rock Around the Clock, they just thought, well, that's perfect. So there's, there's two questions really here, which I, I think are interesting, which is, first of all, if Peter Ford had chosen another record, would Rock Around the Clock have been the great sort of um, era um, encapsulating song that it became? And also, if Rock Around the Clock hadn't been at the start of Blackboard Jungle, would rock and roll have been associated with juvenile delinquency. He's a somewhat unlikely star, though, in many ways, isn't he, Peter? So I spoke to my dad about Rock Around the Clock. He would have been 13 in 1955, and he remembers watching Blackboard Jungle, and he remembers seeing Bill Haley. And his memories of Bill Haley are that he didn't look like a rock and roll star. Right. Now, this must have been like a retrospective view, because then he would have seen... Well, I know he saw the Beatles and the Stones and the Kinks in the 60s, so he must have retrospectively looked at what well, he was 30 years old, wasn't he, Bill Haley? He hasn't got the cheekbones of your classic rock and roll star. He's got the kiss curl, but he doesn't look... Well, he's blind in one eye as well, so he's got kind of wonky eyeballs. Yeah, he doesn't look like what we now think of as a rock and roll star. He apparently, as a small kid, had an operation on his ear, which somehow managed to cut the optic nerve to his left oh. eye. Oh, I mean, I, how that works, I don't know. And so he was. Um, so his left eye could never quite focus um, with the others, uh, with the other one. Um, so he was very self-conscious about that, and he apparently trained his, this kiss curl, which is like a backwards letter C across his forehead on the right side, 
so that people would look on the right side of it, you know, the, the other side of his face away from his eye and would be distracted. Uh, and the, the adjective, well, the two adjectives that have most often been used to describe him are, I'm afraid to say, pudgy, which is very unfair, but probably true, and also avuncular. I don't think I had any uncles that looked like Bill Haley, but you can see what they mean. He wasn't a threatening man. No, he certainly didn't have that kind of sexy androgynous appeal uh, that we associate with rock and roll or even the likes of Frank Sinatra, you know, the pre-rock and roll crooners. Um, He was a very sort of comfortable presence. He was certainly not threatening in any way. And yet, um, like you say, he really dug the R&B scene and the song that preceded uh, Rock Around the Clock was Bill's Crazy Man Crazy. Crazy Man Crazy. Which apparently was the first crazy official man, rock and roll record that ever charted man, in the U.S. Please, let's not get into what is the first rock and roll record. Uh oh. We'll still be here. Can when of worms. We're, when we're all dead, it would be okay. terrible. But, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, of all people, he, he has the claim to making the first succession of white rock and roll records in the early 50s. Yep, the first hit was Crazy Man Crazy. Before that, he did a version of Rocket 88, which is mm-hmm. not quite as wild as the, uh, the original black version on Sun Records, but it's pretty close for a, you know, for a white guy in the early 50s. And certainly um, he was probably, I mean, if not the first rock and roll record, they were the first ones that charted. Rocket 88 and also um, Crazy Man Crazy and to some extent Rock Around the Clock, to me they strike me as kind of like loping along rockabilly records rather than... Uh, rock and roll, which is sexed up with that black mojo, which he did not possess. But um, I'm interested that the DNA of what became rock and roll was influenced by all of these different uh, elements of the bouillabaisse. Can you talk about that? Like just all the different strands that made rock and roll? Yeah. I mean, what's interesting to me is the fact that when people were making rock and roll, they didn't realize they were making rock and roll. Sure. And you, you mentioned the you mentioned the word rockabilly. I mean, that's a retrospective way of looking at music. Mm. And so, yeah, in retrospect, we can say there was a little too much country, not enough backbeat, not enough R and B. But at the time, it was really just people hearing all these different strands of music, and um, yeah, rock and roll, R and B, all with all with different crazes that were filling the dance floor and there would be a new one every week even in the 40s and 50s and they all just got pushed together in an entirely random way i mean there was no plan it just happened was the idea of uh, using the clock the one two three was that quite a familiar trope because i like the fact that this record this epoch defining record starts off with a one two three and then the first song you hear on the beatles first record is I saw her standing there, which starts off with one, two, three, four, yeah. And we're still waiting for somebody to do a one, two, three, four, five. That would be the, <laughs> uh, the ultimate uh, successor to that. Yeah. Um, yes. One, two, three. It's getting you ready. It's like um, the start of Blue Suede, Blue Suede Shoes. Any of those songs. It's, it's a clarion call. It's saying, "Wake up!" You know, something's happening here. And the clock. It's such an obvious way of um, linking a song together. Um, I mean, my favourite of all those is 
Chuck Berry's reeling and rocking, which got dirtier and dirtier the older and dirtier he got. <laughs> but it's exactly, it's the same thing. And it all comes out of a Louis Jordan song from the 40s that had a similar theme. And I'm sure there are things going back into history, nursery rhymes and so on. Well, if Katie and I had been in the recording studio in New York on that fateful day, what sort of setup would we have seen? How many takes of the song were there? How good were these musicians? You have to remember Bill Haley and the Comets were playing almost every night. So they were tight. I mean, they, they, could, they could easily fill a dance floor and they could keep an audience happy. They knew how to do that. But in terms of actually making a record that was different, that would actually excite an audience, that would blast out of the, uh, the, the cinema screen and also over the radio as well, they needed, for the first time in their career, a professional, a really professional producer. And they had a guy called Milt Gabler, who was very cynical about the kind of record he was making. He knew he was effectively making a novelty. It wasn't supposed to last. It was supposed to be a hit for three months and then forgotten about. And so he asked the band to rehearse and repeat all the most hackneyed riffs that he's ever heard on swing records and jazz records and R&B records, and they did. He asked the um, session guitarist, Danny Cedroni, to repeat a guitar solo from a previous Bill Haley track. Rock this joint. Way on a rock, way on a roll, way on a rock this joint tonight. And to make sure that the backbeat came across, because he realised that was really going to make the song, he actually got the drummer to keep hitting the rim of the snare drum at the opportune moments throughout the song. And if you listen to it now, it's 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 a gentle piece, but every so often there's this bang bang, which would leap out of the radio or. When, when Blackboard Jungle came out, it certainly leapt out of the cinema screen. Yeah, it really pops. And you mentioned Danny Cedroni, the who did the famous gu- guitar solo. He never got to enjoy it as a hit. No, he died. He, he fell downstairs, which I think is just one of the oh. in, in 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 terms of the great rock and roll deaths. I mean, that has to be up there. I mean, talk about shake, rattle, and roll. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know the exact circumstances, whether the carpet was loose or what happened, but but he he died of the summer that the record was um, was recorded. So no, he never saw it being a big hit. Okay, that is a cavalcade of information. I need to pause. I need to digest, and then I will come back to you with more hunger for facts. Let's have some ads. <laughs> Hello, it's me again. I'm just going to interrupt the history scene to tell you about this other podcast you could check out, because I'm on it. I'm cheating on fire. It's called Dot Com, and it's the documentary series about the people of the Internet. And it starts with Wikipedia. Yeah, sure, it's just a little website, but it's not. Who are these people? The faces behind the screen? The brains behind the words? A place where people can come together and talk about the things that are important to them. We've just found a way in the wiki universe to do that. This is a hidden world and it is fascinating. So if you're digging the fire, you will love this. I mean, how could Wikipedia not be corrupt at this point? Search for .com and subscribe now. How? Now, Katie, perhaps you can explain what is it about Americans and secret societies? Oh, you know what? I think that we have a built-in nostalgia for aristocrats and royalty because we 
abdicated that when we started the USA. So I think it's an attempt to to recreate that exclusivity because we can no longer say we're related to royalty or the king or the queen. So instead, we can say we're a member of a secret society. Okay, well, that makes sense to me. And the reason I asked you that question was that the session for Rock Around the Clock was held at the Pythian Lounge. The Pythian Temple, I beg your pardon, which was the, the headquarters building in New York for the Knights of Pythias, of whom I know nothing beyond the fact that they were a secret society who probably took themselves very seriously. That's but in the building that they occupied was a, a giant ballroom space, and that was where the Decca Records set up their recording studio in, from the mid-50s through to the mid-60s. They would have done this in a, what, a couple of hours, would they, this recording session? Yes, because most of the attention was on the other track, 13 women and only one man. Um, so Rock Around the Clock was an afterthought, which was apparently done in about the last 10 minutes. So interesting how spontaneous it was, I guess, by comparison. And maybe that's what made it so charming. That's what gave it its kind of slapdash effect. I'm wondering uh, how the extreme success of Rock Around the Clock, once it really got going, and it was the theme of this vile film, Blackboard Jungle, how did this affect Bill? Was he prepared for this level of popularity? I don't think so any more than anybody can be when that happens to you. And I mean, they always say it's easier to deal with fame if it comes to you later in life. I wouldn't know. But um, at the at the age of 30, he'd been used to being extremely popular in a dance hall. And suddenly he was the most one of the most famous singers in the world. I mean, at the end of 1955, he was voted not only the top R&B personality of the year, which is bizarre when you think about it, but also the New Music Express readers voted him the world's outstanding musical personality, which, I mean, is, you know, that's 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 quite a title to, to Well, also, to he's not exactly you. exploding with charisma, is he? No. And one of the um, most fascinating aspects of his story to me is what happens in 1957 when he is just about the first of the really big American rock stars to come to England. And there's a huge build-up and tickets are, you know, the proverbial hot cakes and then he arrives at Southampton there's a train a specially chartered train which has come down from Waterloo which is filled with Teddy Boys Bill Haley fans and British rock and roll bands all sort of playing acoustically and so he's he's greeted this guy he, he gets off the boat he's got no idea what he's coming to and he's greeted <laughs> like the messiah and he beams away in his slightly pudgy kind of way gets on the train gets to Waterloo and there's mayhem and let me just read you quickly what um, the Daily Express said when he got to, water, to Waterloo. You saw all around, faces turned upwards, crumpled in fear by now, the ecstasy gone, or angry faces trying to touch the car, or see the face inside, faces bewildered like faces in the panic scenes of Russian films, children tossed <laughs> like jetsam in the swaying human tide. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a good event. It, I, I know, wow. I wish I'd been there. And then you have, you have the... the, the <laughs> The really strange thing, a couple of days later then, so the Daily Mirror, they go and see the first show he plays in London. And um, the first burst of rock music blasted the place. Amplifiers on the stage emphasised each throbbing note. It hit you, <laughs> bounced off the roof and hit you again. Now the sax player gets the fans in a sizzle. He lay on his back and blew. He knelt and played and Haley knelt with him. It sounds like um, 
David Bowie and Mick Ronson. Yeah, yeah. Totally Starman. Yeah. Like, on top of the pop. Exactly, yeah. But so that's the that's the the um, Daily Mirror, Daily Express, saw the same concept. Uh, the curtain came down to a storm of booze above the oh. cheers and whistles at Bill Haley's first London show at the Dominion Theatre. Oh. The seven tartan-jacketed comets duly rocked and duly rolled about the stage, kicking oh. out the noise with weak wisecracks and scatterbrained <laughs> gimmicks. <laughs> Oh, so that's so interesting. You can see the bias there. So you see one newspaper man thinking this is the future and you see another one saying this is just a stupid fad and I'm going to hammer in that last nail. Exactly. So Bill then plays all the rest of the concerts around the UK and is much less popular when he goes home than he was when he arrived. Oh, no. Poor Bill. There are three reasons for that, I think. The first one is that, yes, he didn't look like Elvis Presley or James Dean or, or Joe Lee Lewis, he didn't look as if he was ready to kill you. He looked like the nice guy who you would hope, oh, I'm not going to sit with him and, you know, at the party because he's going to be so boring. Number two, they weren't that wild a band by mid-50s standards. I mean, they could get people to dance, but there was no, no extra element beyond that. And number three, the, the huge backbeat that you'd heard on the record and you'd heard in, in the cinemas, it wasn't really audible uh, when they played live. So I think people came away thinking, oh, that wasn't as exciting as I, you know, as I dreamed it was going to be. How loud would they have been? Because I tried watching some concert footage. I did find myself slightly obsessed, Peter, by Bill's guitar, his beautiful Gibson guitar. Right. <laughs> but would, would we have heard, like, Katie, you know, we are... We are used to rock and roll concerts. We've been to a few in our time. Yes, we have. We're used to the blast of noise. We're used to the ringing of the ears for days to follow. So, Peter, when you were listening to them in a concert hall, would you have got that sense of power of noise? Or were these amps and these new electric guitars quite feeble little things? I would imagine. I mean, I wasn't born at this point, I should point out. But I would imagine that um, you would have been able to hear all the instruments perfectly clearly, but that you wouldn't have... Had, had the ringing in your ears afterwards, that it would have been gentle, gentle exuberance rather than that crushing, overwhelming blast that you that you got if you went to a heavy metal ba- a gig or a punk band, you know, see a punk band. And yet uh, this tepid and pleasant toe-tapper of a ditty was the beginning of rock and roll. The age of rock music began effectively with this one huge hit. It seemed to kill the crooners and all the corny stuff. Um, It's it's just sort of odd when you look at it because you do want it to be much more of a a big bang rather than just a a little peep. Yeah, you're right. Now, in lots of of ways, the, the, the big bang in Britain, we've talked about the big bang in America with Blackboard Jungle, and there, it's not so much the music, it's the music introducing these hoodlums. And right. it's the effect of the hoodlums that is the lasting impression of that film, I think, much more than the music. Um, in, in Britain, what made the same impact was the film called Rock Around the Clock, which is a typically terrible um, 50s, oh, here's a band. My goodness, they've got potential. Let's see if I can make them famous. Oh, I can. And that was pretty much the plot of the film. But there was music all the way through. And, and Bill Haley was in that. that he, was, was, he was in that, and there were lots of his numbers. That was the film in Britain that um, led kids, almost pre-planned, 
to go into cinemas and start ripping seats up with their razors and to march up and down the streets outside the cinemas afterwards shouting the names of Bill's songs. I mean, there's a report of of, of, of these riotous kids going running up and down in a street in London going, Mambo Rock, Mambo Rock, which is, you know, not exactly the Russian Revolution, is it? <laughs> Imagine being an old deer in Elephant and Castle and that's going on and seeing these lads in their teddy boy suits. And then listening out carefully for their slogans and not understanding a single word they're saying. No. Uh, mambo rock, though. I think the old dears would kind of enjoy that. A mambo is something that they could relate to. They, they would know what a mambo was. They would they? know it from yeah. their tea dancing. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to read you something just to, to give you the idea of what it felt like to be, be a, a rock and roll fan in 1956. To go and see Rock Around the Clock and to feel part of that sort of excitement. Um, we've got a guy called Tony Scullion who was arrested for whatever he did at the, the cinema. And his mate, Ken, captured it, captured it completely. He said, his music is diff- different from anything I ever heard before. I've never felt so excited in my life. This rhythm is exciting and lively. It makes me feel as though nothing else mattered. And isn't that what rock and roll has always supposed to have been Whoa. about? Nothing yes. else matters. You're just there. He, these are young philosophers for the ages. <laughs> exactly. Ken has summed up, unwittingly, Ken in 1956 has summed up the next 40 years of youth culture in a single throwaway sentence. Yeah, you, you, you almost don't need anything else to happen. You could, do, <laughs> you could, you could just stop history at that point. <laughs> so we're kind of chuckling at this because uh, it just seems sort of incongruous that these kids are just moved to heights of passion and violence by this peppy little pop number. However, it does seem that this is the first time that teenagers were addressed, listened to, catered to in culture um, so specifically. I mean, I guess you would have had the crooners and, you know, Frank Sinatra, for instance, certainly had his Bobby Soxers fainting in the aisles. But this was different. It was almost like a, a call to arms, a manifesto. Um, I'd agree with you up to a point, but I'd also say that almost every every development in uh, popular music history from the 1890s onwards shares two things. First of all, it all uh, that all these crazes come from black music, ultimately. And secondly, they're all greeted by the white establishment and parents as being the most appallingly disgusting thing that anybody's ever heard in their lives, which is guaranteed to ruin the morals of their innocent young girls and uh, girls and boys. So... Lots of people write about the 1950s and the Teddy Boys and rock and roll as if it's the first occasion this has happened. But the same things were happening, particularly in America in the 30s and the 40s with swing. And before that with jazz in the 1910s, 1920s. And as I say, with ragtime, right back to the 1890s as well. Oh, sure. And I guess, of course, and with blues as well, because it was always it was always addressing uh, the most base elements of one's personal desires so that's always a good starting point, I think, to get the teens ripping up the seats. All the way back, Katie, I think it was episode four of our exploration of the world through Billy Joel's number one smash hit. We spoke about Johnny Ray, the sort of pre-rock and roll hero, and the tragic tale of him unwittingly starting something and then soon being subsumed or overtaken by someone else. Yeah, he couldn't ride that wave that he kicked up. Yeah, and it feels that Bill was a little bit like that as well because I can imagine that if you were a crooner 
and Bill comes along with his rock around the clock, you think, ah, oh, I'm toast. And then a few years later, Bill is looking at Elvis and he's looking at Little Richard and he's looking at even like a Gene Vincent and Eddie Cochran thinking, my time has gone so fast. Well, they, yeah, they've done it better than I have. Although, Tom, I would say he did continue to ride that wave because there was something evergreen about Rock Around the Clock. And in fact, I wanted to ask you about this, Peter, the fact that it kept getting revived. What what was the the secret of this song and its longevity? Well, I know you, you, you mentioned earlier about it being, it being revived in America in the mid-70s. Um, I think it was number one or very close to number one in Australia in 1964. Uh, in 1968, I can dimly remember as a very small child that it was back in my top 30 again and again in 1974. And every time Bill Haley came to England, much more so than any of the other American rock and rollers, he was greeted as being the absolute saint of, of the original sort of rock and roll um, era so he would come from obscurity back at home in america he would he spent a lot of time in mexico he would basically jump on any craze that was going but his uh, his live shows became increasingly um i don't know how you describe it depressing i suppose because he would just sing his three or four hits and just leave the band to to put on beatles wigs and sing i want to hold your hand and she loves you anything just to keep people happy and then every three or four years he would come to england and it would be like 1957 again and i was trying to think about this this morning and trying to work out why i think why that was because he clearly wasn't as exciting a performer as um, his contemporaries like you know gene vincent jerry lee lewis chuck berry elvis presley of course but there was something about him. He 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 turned into an underdog. And I think maybe in a sort of subliminal way, the Patetti boys who'd been the outcasts, the wild outcasts of the mid-50s, by the mid-60s and onwards, they felt like outcasts in a different way because society outrage had uh, passed them by and they were just these sad guys who were walking around the streets in their 20s, 30s, 40s and ultimately 50s, still trying to get, if they had hair, still trying to get their hair to go up into a quiff and still trying to look menacing when actually they would cross the road to avoid you if they saw you coming. But then suddenly, every three or four years, Bill Haley. He's like, Uncle Bill's come back and we can be who we used to be. And so to his amazement, he would get these tumultuous receptions. Um, And psychologically, that's got to do weird things to you because... You're nobody, and then for two or three days, you're a king, and then you go back to being a nobody again, and it keeps happening. Did anyone cover it with any success, Peter? I think about the Beatles when they are in their formative years in Hamburg, and they are banging out the rock and roll classics in the Star Club on amphetamine pills, learning their trade, and then on those early Beatles records, certainly some of the albums and some of the B-sides, you can just hear loads of early rock and roll classics. You know, they're doing their their Chuck Berries, they're doing their Carl Perkins and stuff like that. Did they ever record a version of Rock Around the Clock? And that, or was it seen by the Beatles, even in that early 60s period in Hamburg? Was that gap of five, six years making it seem too old? Um, I think as soon as Elvis came along in 56, it was too old for mm-hmm. lots of these kids, like the Beatles, like the Stones. Every time they they were asked about what turned them into musicians, they would always say Elvis, 
to a man, it was always Elvis. It was never Bill Haley. Even though they must have liked Bill Haley for six months beforehand, Elvis was just from a completely different dimension, and he belonged to them in a way that Bill Haley didn't. How did Bill Haley cope with this schizophrenic lifestyle that he increasingly lived, where he was king of the hill for a week at a time and then followed by months of obscurity? Oh, he drank. And the older he got, the more he drank. And he drank and his marriages suffered and his kids suffered particularly and his career suffered. And yeah, you know, alcoholism, it's a terrible thing. A little self-medication gone awry for sure. And by the time he meets his end, when was that? Uh, 1981. So he's, where are we? 55, I think. (gasps) So young. That is so young. And so there was some kind of jiggery pokery about maybe he had a brain tumor, but then other people say, no, he was just pretending to have one to excuse his uh, lackluster performances and behavior. I I think so. I think he got to the point where he realized that um, he he couldn't do anything that lived up to his name. But apparently there are such sad stories. He ended up living in South Texas, just, just over the border from Mexico, uh, in a place called Harlingen, something like that. Um, and at home it was really sad because his wife couldn't bear to have him in the house, so he stayed in the pool house. And then he would go missing for days at a time and presumably be dossing on the street or in the car or whatever then he'd come home um stumble around you know i don't know if he ever fell in the pool but he might well have done and the other thing he would do was to to go into bars downtown and sit there um with a cap pulled down right over his eyes but still a tiny bit of the kiss curl Mm -hmm. Ah. peeking out and say and say to people do you know who i am uh, hoping that somebody was going to say, oh, you're Bill Haley. And when that didn't work, he would pull out the, his ID and say, I'm Bill Haley. And they'd stare at the, and say, William Haley. Oh, yeah, oh, good. I'm very pleased for you. Okay, and see you tomorrow. Yeah. And, I mean, that's a very, very sad situation. So I used Jeez. to be, I, you know, I could have been a contender. I mean, oh, I mean, the thing was, he was a contender. That's what's so sad about it. He was a contender. It. He made it. Yeah, he, yeah exactly. Terrible. Is it true, Peter, as well, that Q. Brian Jones Sitar, that he painted his <laughs> windows black? Yes, in, house? In, the, in, in the pool house, exactly, yeah. You can't have that daylight coming in and showing you who you are, can you? Whereas if it's dark, you don't know. Oh. Peter, I've got one final question for you. When we hear those opening chords, when we hear that, those rim shots on the drum, why is it that that simple song works? It's the backbeat. Uh, that's, all, that's all it is. That's all you need. It's the clarion call of the one, two, three, and then it's the backbeat. And it swings. I mean, that's all, you know, ultimately, that's all that a dance record has to do. Does rock and roll happen without it? Everything that we've known and loved in all the subsequent years, would there have been another explosion, another spark that lit the fire if yeah. he had not come along? Yes, if Bill Haley hadn't existed, Elvis would have been exactly the same. I don't think... Um, for all the sort of cultural impact impact that he had at the time, um, I think if you take him out of rock and roll history, the world doesn't end. Pretty much the same things happen. Well, now I fully understand and appreciate the whole rock around the clock thing. You know, I was thinking it was a tad tepid 
Tom. Mm. Lots of T's there. But now uh, it's just one of those great stories. So well told, Peter Doggett. The whole, the melancholy, the the chance involved being in the right place at the right time. Um, just one of those little flutter of the butterfly wings that makes pop culture what it is. Thank you so much. All he was trying to do was make people happy and it, all he did was ruin his own life. It's it's yeah, it's tragic. Oh, Katie, a what a melancholy tale. You know what? Fame is not good for anybody. It just really messes with your melon man. It does. And I feel quite warm towards Bill as a result of our chat with Peter. I also feel slightly sad that the kiss girl seems to have gone with Bill. When was the last time you saw someone with a kiss curl? I can't really think. It's just pretty much kind of a Cupid doll situation. Betty Boop had one. And Did then... Lisa Stansfield have one? <gasps> Lisa Stansfield. Been around the world and I, yeah, yeah. I can't find my baby. There you go. Yeah. Um, it worked for her. Uh, both her eyeballs worked, though, so it certainly <laughs> it was just a, a fashion accessory. So Billy and Rock Around the Clock, he... Mm. Probably was too young. Yeah, he would have been too young to be allowed to go see Blackboard Jungle. But he would have been aware that there was a um, some sort of subversive element to this toe tapper. Um, I mean, he does talk about Elvis coming up. Yeah, which he has has to, doesn't he? He has to talk about Elvis. But I think naturally enough that Rock Around the Clock would have certainly tickled his pickle in the rock and roll styly. Yeah. And maybe he would have heard it on its many reissuings as well. Maybe it would have swum back into his consciousness when it came back into the charts as discussed in the 60s yeah. and the 70s. Well, but, well um, Dick Clark featured it on American Bandstand. I think it was 61 or 62. And uh, even then that was seen as kind of like a retro sound. Yeah. So it was only five or six years later. And then there was Dick Clark. You can see this clip on YouTube where he's going, hey, kids, remember this? This guy's a maestro and wheeling him out again. So... Um, I think it's just one of those things that it is absolutely a touchstone if you're an incipient rock and roller. Yeah, very much so. And if this episode has put you in the mood for early rock and rollers, and indeed, Katie, for rock and rollers throughout the years, may we recommend to you a podcast called Death of a Rockstar. These are the immersive stories of the men and the women who we have loved listening to over the last 50 years, including Buddy Holly, Elvis Presley and John Lennon. To find it, just search for Death of a Rockstar in all your usual podcast places. As long as you're frittering your life away on the internet, why don't you get in touch with us? Uh, you can follow our shenanigans on Instagram and Twitter at Spread That Fire. And if you're so inclined to reach out and touch and uh, share some deep thoughts, perhaps suggest yourself as an expert, you can do that at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. And Tom, what do we have to look forward to next week? Katie, we have Albert Einstein, the quintessential mad professor. Oh, I love his crazy hairdo. What a fashion icon. <laughs> Crowd Network, a place where you belong.
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.